0: Dot com. This is a reading of a cycle of lectures by Rudolf Steiner entitled The Modern Art of Education, given in 1923. This is Lecture 3, entitled Greek Education and the Middle Ages, given on August 7, 1923. When I tried to present the Greek ideal of education, its only purpose was to stimulate the ideas that must prevail in today's educational system. At the present stage of human life, it is naturally impossible to adopt the methods of the Greeks. In spite of this, an overall truth of education can be learned from the Greek ideal, and we must begin by placing this truth before us as it was affirmed in the culture of ancient Greece. Public education in ancient Greece dealt only with children over the age of seven. Until then, Greek children were raised at home. Where the women lived in seclusion from outer society, which was the affair of men. That system confirms a truth of education, without which we cannot really educate, because the seventh year of life is an all important period of childhood. The main characteristic of the seventh year is the change of teeth. This is an event that is assigned little importance today, but think about it. The human organism brings the first teeth with it as an inheritance, or rather, it brings the force to produce the first teeth from the organism, and by the seventh year they are worn out. It is absolutely wrong to think that the force pushing up the second teeth did not develop before the age of seven. It develops slowly from birth and culminates around the seventh year. It then produces the second teeth from the forces of the whole human organism. This event is extraordinarily important in the course of human life because it does not happen again. The forces present from birth until the seventh year culminate with the appearance of the second teeth and they do not act again in our earthly lives. This fact must be properly understood But it can be understood only by observing without preconceptions other processes in the human being around the seventh year. Until the seventh year, a person grows and develops according to natural principles. Natural formative forces, the soul and the spirit, have not yet separated from one another in the child's organism. They form a unity until the seventh year. As a child develops the organs, nervous system, and blood circulation, this development also reveals the evolution of soul and spirit. A child is given a strong inner force that produces the second teeth, because everything during this period of life is still interwoven. With the second teeth this force weakens, it withdraws somewhat, and no longer works as strongly from the inner being. Why is this? Suppose we were to get new teeth every seven years. I will take an extreme example for the sake of clarity. If the organic forces we carry within us up to the seventh year, if this unity formed by body, soul and spirit were to continue throughout life, we would receive new teeth approximately every seven years. The old teeth would fall out and be replaced by new ones. However, through our whole life, we would remain children, just as we were before the seventh year. We would not develop the life of soul and spirit that separates from physical nature. Because the physical force decreases in the seventh year, and because the body no longer thrives so well in a certain sense, the body now produces weaker, more delicate forces from itself... It becomes possible for the subtler forces of soul life to develop. The body grows weaker, the soul stronger, as it were. A similar process takes place at puberty, around thirteen or fourteen. The soul element weakens to a certain extent, and the spiritual aspects appear. Thus, if we look at the first three periods of life, until the seventh year we are beings of united body soul and spirit from around the seven from around seven to fourteen we are beings of body and soul with a separated nature of soul and spirit and after puberty we are threefold beings a body of being excuse me a being of body a being of soul and a being of spirit this truth opens deep vistas into the whole of human evolution Indeed, unless we appreciate this, we really ought not to educate children. Unless we realize the far-reaching consequences of this fact, all education must be considered a fairly superficial matter. The Greeks, and this is the amazing thing, knew this. To them it was an unshakable truth that once a boy reached his seventh year, he should be removed from his parents' house, from the mere natural principles and the basic matter-of-fact nurturing. This fact was so deeply rooted in Greek society that we do well to remind ourselves of it today. Later, during the Middle Ages, traces of this important educational principle still existed. The modern rational and intellectual age has forgotten these things and even takes pride in showing that it places no value on such a truth. Children are usually required to go to school at an earlier age, a year or more before the age of seven. We may say that this departure from such eternal principles of human evolution is typical of the prevailing chaos in our system of education from which we must extricate ourselves. The Greeks placed such a high value on this fact that all education was based on it all that I described yesterday happened in order to regulate education in its light what did the Greeks see in a small child between birth and the change of teeth they saw a being sent to earth from spiritual heights they saw a being who had lived in a spirit world prior to earthly life as they observed the child They tried to discover whether the body was properly expressing the divine life of existence before birth. The Greeks considered it important to recognize in children, up to the seventh year, that the physical body holds a spirit being who has descended. There was a very barbaric custom in certain areas of Greece. People exposed and thus killed children who were instinctively believed to be mere sheaths, not expressing a true spirit being in their physical nature. This was the result of rigidly adhering to the belief that the physical human being, during the first seven years of life, is the garment of a divine spirit being. When children pass the seventh year, this too was known in Greece, they descend a stage lower. During the first seven years, children are, in a sense, released from the heavens, still bearing the sheath they inherited, which is then set aside at the seventh year. Not just the first teeth, but the whole body is cast off around the age of seven, and indeed every seven years. In the first seven years the bodily sheath revealed to the Greeks what the forces of prenatal life had made of children. Children carry their earthly sheath proper, their first true earthly sheath, only after the seventh to fourteenth years and onward. I am trying to express these things as they were conceived by the highest type of Greeks. They thought that if they revere the divine in little children there was no need to be concerned with them during the first seven years of life. They could grow up in whatever families the gods had placed them. Supra-earthly forces continued to work in them from before earthly life. Once the seventh year is reached, however, it is wise to take responsibility for the development of forces within children. So how do we approach education if we understand how to pay real reverence to the divine in human beings? As much as possible, we must develop the human faculties that unfold in a child up to the seventh year the divine power, the spirit's expression in the body must be developed to the greatest possible degree. Thus, the gymnast had to be convinced of the need to understand the divine power in the human body and the ability to develop it there. The healing, life-sustaining forces that a child brings from pre-earthly existence, forces that have been nurtured in a very basic way, up to the change of teeth must be preserved between the seventh and fourteenth years through human understanding and art. Education thus had to proceed in harmony with the natural being. Consequently, all education was, in quotes, gymnastic, because the education of the divine in a human being was seen as gymnastic. Such divine gymnastics must be continued through education. This was more or less the attitude of the Greeks toward children. Teachers thought that if through insight they could preserve the freshness and health of the formative years that developed up to the seventh year, if they could enable those natural forces to continue throughout earthly life until death, then they were teaching in the best possible way. To see that the child in a human being is not lost until death was the great principle, the tremendously far-reaching truth of Greek education. Greek teachers thought that they should make sure human beings could preserve for themselves throughout life the forces of childhood, and that between the seventh and fourteenth year those forces retained their living nature. This is a tremendously far-reaching and deeply significant principle of education. Gymnastic exercises were based on the perception that the forces of early childhood do not disappear, but merely slumber and must be reawakened each day. Gymnastic education was meant to awaken those slumbering forces between the seventh and the fourteenth years, to draw out forces that were present naturally during the first period. The greatness of their culture and civilization arose from the fact that the Greeks, by introducing the right education, were able to preserve the child in human beings right up until death. When we wonder at this greatness, we must ask ourselves whether we imitate that ideal. We cannot because it is based on three facts, without which it is unthinkable. These three facts must be remembered by modern teachers who look back to Greece. The first, to bear in mind, is that the Greek principles of education were applied to only a small portion of humanity, the upper classes, and they presuppose the existence of slavery. Without slavery it would have been impossible to educate even a small portion of humanity in this way. This education dictates that part of humankind's work on earth fell to those who were limited to an elementary human destiny and without education in the Greek sense. Greek civilization and education are unthinkable without slavery. Thus the delight of those who look back fondly to what Greece accomplished in the history of humankind must be tempered by the tragic realization that it was achieved at the cost of slavery. The second fact is women's position in Greek society. Their lives were withdrawn from the direct impulses at the root of Greek civilization, and this seclusion made it possible for a child under seven to be left in the care of instinctive home life, instinct that was cultivated without any knowledge whatever. Out of human instinct, the elemental formative forces guided child until guided the child until the change of teeth. It was necessary that a child's life until then should, despite its different character, proceed just as unconsciously in the environment of the family as the embryonic life had through the forces of nature. This is the second fact. The third is really a paradox to modern thinking, but we must understand it nevertheless. The second point, the position of women in Greece, is easier to understand because we know from a superficial observation of modern life that between the Greek age and our own time, as a result of what took place in the Middle Ages, women have attempted to share in society. If we still want to be as Greek as the Greeks were, with conscious education confined exclusively to men, I wonder how small this audience might be if it were made up of only those men who are allowed to concern themselves with education. The third fact goes even deeper, and its nature makes it difficult for modern civilization to acknowledge. We attain our spiritual life through active human effort. Anyone who observes the spiritual activities of civilization will have to admit that in the most important area of civilized life we must count on what human activity will achieve in the future looking at all the human labour that must go forward excuse me that must go toward the attainment of a spiritual life today we are somewhat astonished by the spiritual life of ancient greece and especially that of the ancient east spiritual life was simply there the role of the seventh year in life a fact that modern humanity simply does not realize was deeply rooted in Greece. Parenthesis' outer indications suggest its significance, but modern culture is very far from understanding it. It was one of the great truths that flowed through ancient spirituality. We stand in wonder before that spiritual life when we realize the wisdom and spiritual knowledge that humanity once possessed without being confused by modern naturalistic and materialistic presuppositions, if we look back at early civilization and the beginning of history, we find a universal, penetrating wisdom that guided human lives. It was not acquired wisdom, it flowed to humankind through revelation and inspiration. This is what people today will not acknowledge. It will not recognize that a primal wisdom was bestowed upon us spiritually and that we evolved it in such a way that even in Greece, for example, there was still a concern to preserve the child in the human being all the way through earthly life. This revelation of primeval wisdom can no longer be found, which is a fact deeply connected with human evolution. A part of human progress involves the fact that primal wisdom no longer comes to us without activity on our part. We must attain wisdom through our own efforts. This is related in an inner sense to the growing impulse of human freedom, which is in its strongest phase today. Human progress does not ascend as is readily believed in a straight line from one stage to the next out of ourselves, we have to attain something today that requires losing the revelation that comes from without and holds the deepest of all wisdom. The loss of primordial wisdom, the need to attain wisdom by our own effort, is related to the third fact in Greek education. Their form of education may fill us with admiration but it cannot be divorced from these three facts—slavery, the position of women, and the relationship between primordial wisdom and spirituality. None of these exist today, nor would they be considered worthy of true humanity. We live in a time when we must ask how we should teach children, while realizing that these three facts have been swept away by human evolution. We must observe the signs of the times if we want to look into the inner depths and find the true impulse for modern education. The whole so-called medieval development of humanity, which followed Greek civilization and has indeed come right down to modern times, proved by its very nature that in regard to education new paths are required, not those of the Greeks which were well suited to an earlier time. Human nature had indeed changed. The efficacy and reliability of Greek education arose from the fact that it was based on human habit, on what could be built into the very structure of the human body. Until the change of teeth, around the seventh year, human development is related inwardly to the body. One's physical development, however, functions unconsciously. Indeed, only when the faculties work unconsciously do they function correctly. Indeed, they are reliable only when skills are implanted in the dexterity of one's hands and accomplished without further thought. Once practice becomes habit, I become secure in what I need to do through my body. The true goal of Greek life was to make one's whole earthly existence a matter of habit in this sense. From education until death, Human activities were intended to become habitual, to the degree that it would be impossible not to do them. When education is based on such a principle, the natural forces of a child, before the change of teeth, can be maintained until the end of life. What happened when, through historical circumstances, people poured over from East to West during the Middle Ages? and established a new civilization in Central Europe and the West, even in America. They assimilated the qualities natural to the southern regions, but they also brought different habits of life with them. As a result, it set up the conditions for a totally different kind of individual human development. For example, human consciousness saw that slavery should end and that women should be respected. In relation to evolution of the individual, it was seen that between the seventh and fourteenth years, when development is no longer only physical, and the soul is becoming freed from the body, children were no longer susceptible to the treatment used in earlier times. In effect, it was no longer possible to conserve the forces of early childhood for the ages between seven and fourteen. This is the most significant historical phenomenon since the beginning of the Middle Ages. Only today do we see the powerful forces of that phase after the fourteenth and fifteenth years, when human nature rebels most strongly, indeed when it inwardly carries the forces of rebellion. How was this rebellion in human nature expressed? In Roman and medieval traditions, The primordial wisdom that had flowed naturally into the Greeks had to be preserved in books and writings. In fact, it was accepted only on the authority of tradition. The concept of faith as developed in the Middle Ages did not exist in very ancient civilizations, nor even in Greek culture. It would have made no sense then. Belief began only when the primeval wisdom was merely preserved and no longer flowed directly into human beings. Basically, this is still true of most people today. Everything of a suprasensory nature belongs to tradition. It belongs to the realm of belief, no longer direct and real. Reality now is nature and the perception of nature, but anything related to suprasensory worlds is tradition. Until the Middle Ages and beyond, people surrendered to such tradition, sometimes believing that they did indeed experience such things, but in truth direct spiritual revelation came to be preserved in writing, handed down from generation to generation as a heritage, based merely on tradition. This was the outer aspect. What about the inner aspect? Let's consider Greece again. Soul faculties developed on their own because the whole human being acquired life habits whereby the child was preserved in adults until death. Music arose from breathing and blood circulation, intellect from gymnastics. Without being cultivated, a marvelous memory evolved in the Greeks because bodily habits were developed. Today we lack any idea of the kind of memory that even among the Greeks was not cultivated in any way. In the ancient East this was even more significant. The body was nurtured, habits were cultivated, and memory arose from the body itself. A marvelous memory was the result of the proper physical education. The fact that we need shorthand notes from lectures to help us remember proves that we no longer have any idea of the Greek means of memory, which in a wonderful way made it easy to hand down spiritual treasures for the common good. Lecture notes would have seemed absurd to the Greeks. Memory, the capacity of a healthy body, preserved everything. The soul developed from this physical capacity and perceived primordial spiritual wisdom, which came as it were through revelation such wisdom disappeared and became mere tradition. It had to be passed from generation to generation externally by the priesthood who preserved tradition. Inwardly, humankind was forced to cultivate a faculty that the Greeks never considered necessary. In education during the Middle Ages, it became increasingly necessary to cultivate memory. Everything preserved by tradition was committed to memory. Thus education had to cultivate historical tradition and inner memory. Memory was the first soul quality to be cultivated after the soul was freed. Those who remember how important memory has become in our schools can see how rigidly memory has been preserved because of historical necessity. Throughout the Middle Ages, because it was so difficult to gain access to the soul, Education struggled forward unsteadily, like a ship thrown out of balance by a storm. We can access the body and come to terms with spirit, but soul is so connected with human individuality that it is less accessible. Cultivating enough piety to find an inner path to receive the words of the priests and teachers who preserved tradition was a matter of soul. It requires tact of soul to cultivate another's memory without violating that person's individuality, without subtly suggesting one's own preferences. What was necessary for the soul culture of the Middle Ages was heeded by tactful people as much as it was ignored by the tactless. This was the situation for medieval education. It fluctuated between helping and harming the human soul in its depths. And much of this medieval education has been preserved even today, though completely unnoticed. Education during the Middle Ages assumed this character, because to begin with the soul no longer wanted to preserve the child. In the soul itself had to be educated. And because of the conditions then, the soul could be educated only through tradition and memory. A person is in a kind of flux between the seventh and the fourteenth years. The soul must function without the security afforded by the physical constitution before the seventh year, and direction is not yet available from the spirit. Everything has a very intimate quality, which requires piety and tact. All of this affected education with the result that for a long period of human evolution, education entered a vague, indefinite path. That period during which tradition and memory had to be cultivated was full of extraordinary difficulties for education. Today we live in a time when, because of the natural course of development, we desire another kind of certainty, no longer based on the unstable ground of the Middle Ages. We see this search for new foundations in the countless efforts toward educational reform today, and knowledge of this has led to Waldorf education. Waldorf education is based on the question of how to educate in a time when the soul still rebels against preserving the child, in quotes, after the seventh year. And in addition to this, how do we educate now that humankind has lost? even the old medieval connection with tradition. Outwardly we have lost faith in tradition. Inwardly we strive to be free and to face life at every moment without restraint. We do not want to stand on a foundation of memory throughout life, such as the modern individual inwardly wishing to be free of tradition and memory. No matter how much certain people today would like to preserve ancient traditions, it simply won't work. The very existence of numerous efforts to reform education shows that we face a great problem. It was impossible during the Middle Ages to educate as the Greeks did, and today education can no longer be based on tradition and memory. We must educate according to our immediate present here on earth where we have to make decisions as free beings with the given facts of the moment. How to educate free human beings is a question that has never confronted humankind before. Greek educators, the gymnasts, aimed to preserve the forces of childhood into the second period of life, from around seven to fourteen. The forces of childhood, they said, must be conserved and remain in a person until earthly death. Gymnasts had to foster in general what they could only indicate in children of 7 to 14 as they inherited their natural foundation. They had to learn how to determine this and preserve it through their own spiritual wisdom. Evolution during the Middle Ages went beyond this and led to our present condition. It is only today that one's position in society become, becomes a conscious matter. This conscious life can manifest only after puberty, after the fourteenth or fifteenth year. Then something appears in a person that I will describe in following lectures as an awareness of the true nature of inner freedom. Then indeed a person, quote, comes to oneself, close quote. <coughs> if, as occasionally happens today, one seems to have reached such awareness before puberty, it is not actually a true but a clumsy imitation of later life. The Greeks purposely tried to avoid this in an individual's development. The intensity with which they invoked the, quote, child nature, close quote, into human existence overshadowed and obscured the full experience of this moment of consciousness after puberty. One... Pass through it with one's awareness dimmed by nature, because of historical course, because of the historical course of human evolution, however, this is no longer possible. This conscious urge would break out with elemental volcanic force after the age of puberty if one attempted to hold it back during what we call the elementary school age between seven and fourteen. The Greeks had to consider the earliest natural life of a child. Today we have to consider the time following puberty and all that will be experienced then in full human awareness by a boy or girl we have been guiding for the past seven years. We can no longer suppress this into dreamlike obscurity as the Greeks did. Even those of the highest levels, for example Plato and Aristotle, who therefore accepted slavery as an obvious necessity. Because education obscured this all-important phenomenon of human life after puberty, the Greeks were able to preserve the forces of early childhood into the period of life between seven and fourteen. We must be able to see the future humanity if we wish to educate correctly. The Greeks were able to rely on instinct because their purpose was to conserve the foundations laid by nature. As educators today we must be able to develop intuitions. We must anticipate human qualities if we wish to be true teachers. Essentially our education must give children between seven and fourteen something they can remember when the awareness I have described manifests, a memory that looks with satisfaction at what we have planted in their beings. It allows them positive feelings when recalling their teachers. Our teaching has been wrong if later on in life our students cannot think of us in a positive way. Consequently, we need teachers who have developed intuition, who take the path leading to the spiritual life attainable by human beings. And who can give children of seven to fourteen all that will cause them in later life to look back with satisfaction? Greek teachers were preservers. They saw what lived in children during earlier life and lay dormant there after the seventh year, and they knew they had to reawaken it. What kind of education allows us to implant something during childhood that will later awaken of itself? in free human beings. We must lead education into the future, which today requires a complete change in education. In Greece, education arose through devotion to the nature of children. Education was a fact of nature that played into human life. But because of the way life as a whole has developed, until now, it has worked its way out of its natural foundations. As school teachers, we must recognize that it is time to offer children something to which they can say yes later on in life, when they have awakened to independent consciousness. Children must not only love us while in school, but find their love justified later on by mature discernment. Otherwise, education is only halfway, weak and ineffective. Once we are aware of this, we realize the extent to which education, as a fact of nature that works into human beings, must become a moral fact. This is the deep inner struggle of those who, from the core of their being, have some understanding of what education must become. This feeling becomes the question of how we can make teaching itself into a free activity in the highest sense and to the greatest greatest degree. How can education become an all-encompassing moral concern of humankind? This is the great question before us today, and it must be answered before the best efforts to reform education can be directed correctly into the future. The end of Lecture 3